get as many of you as possible to the mission field and to help as many of you as possible to stay on the mission field and to be as satisfied in God on the field as you can be so that the infinite worth and value of God will be plain in your life and that people will look at him and love him, believe in him through his son, Jesus Christ. So, Father, I pray now that these goals, uh, which are not possible for a human being to produce, would be done by you through your word. Open it, I pray, and shape a kind of people, a kind of layman and pastor here at home and a kind, a kind of missionary that so is so ravished, is so full of delight and joy and satisfaction, deep, deep, broken-hearted satisfaction in you, that it will be plain that their treasure is not upon the earth, but in heaven, so that people are moved to ask a reason for the hope that is in them, and that a door would be opened for the word, and that they would speak the mystery of the gospel openly. And clearly, as they ought to speak, and model the kind of radical, loving, sacrificing, joyful, lay down your life kind of style of living that would show you are real. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to take up covetousness finally and finish off my list of sample sins that we triumph over by means of future grace. That is, faith in future grace. That is, a being satisfied with all that God is for us in Jesus, such that we are weaned off the breast of the world and thus break the power of sin, which only has power through its compelling promises because we have discovered a superior promise. I think that's the simple way to live the supernatural life called Christianity. And after sex and anger, probably money is the big Christianity killer on the mission field and uh, to keep people from the mission field. And so we need to just look at a few passages of Scripture where God shows us how to destroy this Christianity-killing thing called greed. And covetousness and the love of money. Oh, how many Christians in America this is killing. America is the worst place to bring up kids. Mission field is the best place to bring up kids, I think. And it's more dangerous to bring them up in the suburbs than in the city. More dangerous to bring them up in the city here than in the city where uh, they have very little overseas. Because it isn't, it isn't persecution that's the big danger of kids. It's money. And uh, being having to fit in and having to have all the styles and having to wear all the expensive clothing and knowing just the right jargon to use. And it's uh, America is a is a Disneyland of the universe and it is unreal and is dangerous. And so I want to try to help you be free people. You know, you are. Citizens of a kingdom that is not of this world, you are strangers, you are aliens, you are exiles here, and you ought to live like it, and you ought not to be in sync with this world. Paul pleaded that you would not be conformed to this age and this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So that's what we're about here. What is covetousness? I'm not sure I can get a good definition. It's hard to define. But here's my effort. Desiring something so much, we lose our contentment in God. That's my definition of covetousness. Desiring something so much that we lose our contentment in God. The reason it's so hard to define covetousness is that it's it's okay to desire breakfast. It's okay to desire that you have clothing. It's okay to desire that you have a house. It's okay to desire a spouse. It's okay to desire a hundred things. But it might at any moment become covetousness. You can covet food. You can covet sex. You can covet anything wrongly. So you have to figure out, okay, when does it become covetousness? And I have made the effort to say, 
desiring something so much you lose your contentment in God. Now, here's a little clue from a couple of texts why I'm inclined to define it that way. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, Paul says, put, put to death what is in you. And then you list some things. And the last one is covetousness. So he says, put to death what is in you, covetousness. And then he adds this little phrase, which is idolatry. So in Paul's mind, covetousness is idolatry. Now, you know what that started me to thinking? I went back to the Ten Commandments in uh, Exodus 20, and I noticed something. The first commandment is, thou shalt have no other gods before you. And the last commandment is, thou shalt not covet. Which means the first and the last are the same. Which means that idolatry is huge and covetousness is huge. If you begin something and end something with a don't do it, and the things in the middle are big, you better believe the first and the last are big. So covetousness is huge. Which is why probably Jesus talked more about money than anything except the kingdom of God. More than sex, you know, more than all kinds of other temptations. Money was the biggie for Jesus. So, how shall we break the power of the love of money in our lives, which is the root of all evils? That's another text. It's just mind-boggling that Paul would say that in 1 Timothy 6, that the love of money is the root of all evils. I think what he means is the kind of heart that leans on things you can buy for its satisfaction is the kind of heart that produces every other kind of evil. I think that's what he means. The kind of heart that is not satisfied in God, but is constantly leaning on things that you can buy for its heart satisfaction is the heart from which all evil comes. Therefore, we must... Get rid of, put to death that kind of heart that leans on the things you can buy with money for its contentment. There is great gain in godliness with contentment. So what what verses shall we use? And I'll just mention two. Two kinds of verses. And there are many more. This is just the way you live, the way I fight in my life, against the love of money. And I'll tell you, it is war. And you better put governors on your life, even as a missionary. Because expenses will always expand to fill the income. You will always be just getting by. You know that, don't you? That's why a guy can write a book called Getting By on $100,000 a Year. No joke. you got to have a hangar for your plane. you got to pay taxes. you got to... You're just always getting by. Doesn't matter how much you make, you just get by. So set some governors and get by on less so you can give more. This is the big challenge we need to give to our people over and over again, especially as the baby boomers move into their billions. Hebrews chapter 13, verses 5 and 6, to me, is probably the most important text in my life on money. Hebrews 13, 5 and 6. Keep your life free from the love of money. Be content with what you have. And then comes the, the most important theological word in the Bible, which is what? For. For he, God, has said, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Therefore, we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. What can man do to me? Do you see the foundation that was put under the command there? You have a command, then you have an argument. Command, argument, command, argument. This is living by faith in future grace because the argument is a promise. It's about the future. So let's get it here. 
The issue of how am I going to keep my life free from the love of money and how am I going to be content with what I have is given clear as day. There is no big theological conundrum here. This is easy. I'm talking to the teenager tonight. I think I'm supposed to talk to the teenager tonight. This is easy. Teenagers can get this. I think 11-year-olds can get this. This is fundamental, basic Powerful, supernatural Christianity to figure out how am I going to keep my life free from the love of money? And how am I going to be content with what I have so that I'm not constantly coveting and craving and being greedy towards that house and those clothes and that much retirement and that big bank account and that car and just constantly, how am I going to kill that? And the answer is you kill it with a superior promise. And here it is. For the Lord has said, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Therefore, second most important theological word in the Bible. Therefore, we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. Why need help from money? The Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. Now, I know what some of you are thinking right now, because one of you came up to me at the dinner table the other day and said it. You're going to address the issue of retirement funds, health insurance. That unbelief. I said, no. (laughs) But here I am addressing it. I didn't mean to. I didn't know I was going to do this. And uh, I said, no, I'm not, because I don't know what the answer is. And I don't. And uh, Jesus didn't give you an answer. He gave you warnings and promises. And you got to figure out the answer. And you got freedom to figure out the answer. And that's why you're answering it different all over this room. And some of you are not opting into big, fat retirements, and others are. And some aren't opting at all, and the others think you're scoundrel to your wife for not doing it. And There are a lot of different attitudes in this room right now towards health insurance and retirement and how much you should have in the bank. And I think what I would say to a bunch of Americans is, you probably have too much. That's all. That's all I have to say. There's great gain in godliness with contentment. We are called to follow a son of man who had no place to lay his head. Birds of the air have nests. Foxes have holes. The son of man has no place to lay his head. Come follow me. Can I first go bury my father? Let the dead bury their dead. Can I go say goodbye? No, don't say goodbye. You put your hand to the plow and look back. You're not worthy of the kingdom. I mean, there's some radical things here. And so, frankly, um, I'm on. I, I lean towards the crazy people. I do. I want to be more like that. I have a retirement plan. The church does that. And I put as little in it as they let me. I put it. I pushed it as low as they will let me. Six percent of my income goes into a retirement fund that the denomination has. It started at 10. I said, this this is mandatory. Uh, Well, the four percent above six goes into this thing called supplementary whatever. And I I said, well, is that required? No. Okay, give me that money because I have things I want to do with it now, namely send missionaries. Uh, So, yeah, I've got one. I want to be unreal here. But uh, there are a lot of other ways I could pad the future and a lot of other ways people do. And you got kids who are going to go to college. What in the world do you do about that, you know? We don't do much about that. I've got to stop being... Too personal here. That's the most important verse, I think, for me. There are many, many others. Let me take you to one other set. Um, maybe we know it by heart. Philippians 4. There are two pieces of Philippians 4, and it's remarkable how they relate to each other in terms of this whole issue of money. Paul says, I have learned how to be content. I can be abased. And I can abound. I have learned 
the secret of facing plenty and facing want, uh, facing abundance and facing little. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, did you notice the context of what the all things is? I grew up having that verse recited to me. I can do all things through him who strengthened me. And nobody for 25 years ever showed me the context. Namely, I can be abased. I can go without. I can hunger. Those are the all things I can do through him. I always had the notion it was some triumphalist. Success is always implied. I can do all things, meaning mean I get an A on the test, or I'll do good in my speech, or I'll win in the ball game, or that's not the context. I have learned how to be abased and abound. I have learned how to hunger and have plenty. I can do all those things. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. Romans 8. Nevertheless, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. Had he been executed, he would have been a conqueror. Then he gets released. He is a conqueror. I can do all these things through him who strengthens me to die and strengthens me to live, strengthens me to visit in king's palaces, dressed to the hilt, and to visit the poor, stripped from most bare. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. My son, who's not walking the way I'd like him to walk, I left him behind as I came away for five weeks, pleading with him to read Martin Luther's 25 pages called The Freedom of the Christian. Because he said to me the other day, as I was talking about freedom and pleading with him to get right with God, he said to me, Daddy, I've never been free. And I said, uh, he knows everything I have to say. He's heard me preach for 20 years. You know, when your son has heard you preach for 20 years and he says that, you you want to you wanna scream and say, listen, for freedom I have set you free, Galatians 5.1. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And so I said, would you do something for me? Would you just read Luther's Freedom of the Christian, which has two theses. The Christian is the freest of all beings and subject to none. The Christian is the slave of all persons and subject to all. That's the thesis of Luther's treatise. I don't know if he'll read it or not. Pray for him. Ask the Lord that he would read that and that he would see the the, the beauty in it. We are free to dress well and minister to the rich. We are free to dress down, minister to the poor. You are free to do what your conscience tells you to do about health insurance and, and retirement. You are free to do nothing about health insurance and retirement if your conscience in conversation with your wife... <laughs> We are free. Now, I said there were two texts in Philippians 4. That's one of them, 4, 11 to 13. You know the other one, 4, 19. We love it. I love it. It's a great pastor's text in building programs. <laughs> My God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. It doesn't get any better than it doesn't get any more sweeping than that. Although now, in the wider context, I mean, we're just six verses later here than verse 13. All right? So he hasn't left his mind, his thought process here. What are the needs? My God will supply all your needs. And he decides what your needs are. You don't. We think we know what our needs are. That's why we pray the way we do and don't get a lot of answers. God knows what your needs are and he meets them. Nobody asks his father for what he needs and doesn't get it. We just have to adjust our sense of need to what God thinks our sense of need is. 
And our need often includes the strength to hunger. Because that's what verse 12 says. I have learned how to hunger. Meaning it, he was, he was shipwrecked twice. He was hanging on to lumber in the water. Danger on the streets, danger in the cities, danger among false brethren, beaten with rods three times, lashed five times, thirty-nine less one. This man suffered. Those were the needs that he had. How to survive the fifth time they ripped his back to shreds. Those are the needs God supplies. Let's get it right for our people. It's not create some health, wealth, and prosperity thing here so that people think to become a Christian is to prosper. Does not mean that. It means to have the needs met that you will have in order to do the will of God. If you take Matthew 6, seek the kingdom first and all these things will be added unto you. Clothes and food and drink. Really? It does say, peril, sword, persecution, famine, famine, nakedness. This is Romans 8. Through all these things we will be more than conquerors. Through, in, famine, in, nakedness. No, Jesus did not mean... That you always have the set of clothing you want. He meant you will have the drink, you will have the clothes, and you will have the food that you need to do my glorious will. Period. And that may mean starving naked and die triumphantly. Because my God will supply all your needs that you have in that moment in Christ Jesus. You can't put Paul's life and Paul's theology and Jesus' teaching together, I think, any other way. You can't turn this into a health, wealth, and prosperity gospel or a success gospel that guarantees those kinds of physical benefits. It makes a mockery of all the martyrs of the world to do that. Well, that's enough text on covetousness probably. Um, I'll close with a list of warnings. You can have positive. I'll meet all your needs. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. God is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? He can only kill me. You know, Jesus did talk that way. Remember, I do not fear those who can kill the body. And after that, have nothing that they can do. Fear him who can cast both soul and body into hell. I preached a sermon on that one time soon after I came to Bethlehem. And my, my thesis sentence was, fear not, you can only be killed. <laughs> Which I think is a perfect paraphrase of, of Luke 12, 4 and 5. It did not make some of my people happy. But they got happy because they began to learn how to live by faith in future grace instead of Coveting life. You can covet life. Life is a good thing. In fact, First Peter says, those who desire life, that's good. It's okay to desire life, but not if you desire it to the point where you'll disobey to keep it. Or walk in a path of selfishness in order to preserve the comfort of it. The warnings. Luke 12:15 Beware of covetousness Jesus says for your life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions Straightforward warning from the Lord Jesus to you this morning Beware of covetousness Luke 12:15 Mark 4:19 again the the third soil of the parable the deceitfulness of riches Choke out the word. There's that word again, deceitfulness. Yesterday I said lusts of deceit. Here we talk about riches of deceit. It's always deceit. Sin is a liar. Sin is a liar. Sin is a liar. Money lies. Money lies. Money lies to you. 
You open the stock page and look at all the mutual funds. They lie. They lie. Because what they do is they, uh, they go right to your flesh and say, more, 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 more security, more shrewdness, more savvy. In high, out, no, in low, out high. Come on, let's, let's I don't know how to do this. I, I was into the stock market. I had some di- World Disney, uh, what do you call it? Walt Disney stock. Because my mother died 25 years ago and left me $17,000. Oh, what did I do with $17,000? I gave away a lot of it. And then I thought, oh, I got to invest this money. And so I bought a bunch of stocks. For about, there was a period of about two years where it almost killed me. I was a teacher at Bethel College then. Every morning, I'd open that page and walk down Walt Disney or General Motors or Mobile Oil or up, oh, good, happy, down, oh, sad. (laughs) What? And I, I woke up one morning and said, what is happening to me? I got rid of it all. I don't have a single dollar today in the stock market except what that that retirement thing does with my money. <laughs> but that's no that's no criticism of you who can handle it. See, I'm just too weak. I can't even chew gum because I do chew gum every now and then. But Noel has to give it to me a piece at a time because I would eat the whole pack. <laughs> I'm an addictive. I just whoosh, do one thing and huh, just. Eating at all-you-can-eat buffets is just deadly for me because I just think you've got to keep going back until you pop. It, it began to choke me. That's what I'm illustrating here. You lost the point. Mark 4.19, it begins to choke you. And some of you are being choked. Let's just get real about this and go home and strip down a little bit here on this. Others of you have have stripped plenty. Please don't kill yourself because of what I'm saying. First Timothy 6.10. The love of money is the root of all evils. I've said that already. First Timothy 6.9. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into foolishness and harmful lusts which lead to destruction and ruin. Could it be clearer how dangerous... The desire to be rich is. So, pastors, if you're here, preach this. Preach the danger of the desire for riches. And put in its place the desire for joy in giving. What does it say in Ephesians 4? Let the thief no longer steal. But let him work with his hands that he may have to give to him who is in need. Do you hear three levels of money handling there? One is you can steal. That's a level. Second, you can work to have. That's a level. Or third, you can work to have to give. That's the level we want to live at. Preach that to your people. It's okay to make a lot of money. It's like Wesley said, make as much as you can and give as much as you can. Like good old Laterno, right? I think he gave away 90% of his income and lived on 10%. And that's the way rich people ought to live. Stay with the Chevy. You don't need the BMW. It runs just fine. If you want a new one, okay. You don't need a new one either. Why do you have to constantly surround yourself with the accoutrements of wealth just because you make a lot of money? You don't. Keep it simple and give and give and give. Because Jesus said, being the good Christian hedonist that he is, it is more blessed and happy and fulfilling to give than to get. So I'm pleading with you to pursue your happiness here by not pursuing Riches, that is suicide, this text says. You will pierce your soul with many pangs if you desire to be rich. Last warning, 1 Timothy 6, 7. We brought nothing into this world and we can take nothing out. Which means it won't help you when you die. I heard a businessman say once, and you've probably heard it too. 
Nobody ever in their hospital bed in their last battle with cancer says, I wish I'd spent more time at the office. Because relationships of love, a life of love, a life laid down for people will be part of your clean conscience at the last moment. Christ's righteousness will be your rock. But part of the testimony to your reliance on him will be a conscience that says, you loved people, you gave to people, you gave your life to people, you gave your money to people, you gave us everything you could give. You were a giver and not a getter at the horizontal level. You were a getter from God so that you give to people. Theme of faith and future grace in Hebrews that you've been hearing, but I want to get it more expositorily in the last couple of messages and the rest of this morning. So let's go to the book of Hebrews and notice to lay a foundation for the last two messages, some uh, fundamental observations about things. I think we've seen at least two of them already. Here's number one. In Hebrews 11.1, 1, it says faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The assurance of things hoped for. So faith is future-oriented, and it is the confidence that God's going to fulfill his promises and do all these things that we've been talking about for us. And that's faith. Faith is future-oriented and embraces the promises of God and what he's going to do for us. And it has deep, strong, abiding confidence. And without that, we're just going to cave on money. We're going to cave on sex. We're going to cave on power. We're going to cave on, on anger. We're going to cave into sin over and over again if we're not strongly confident that he's for me. So that I can say, the Lord is for me. The Lord is my helper. What can man do to me? If we don't feel that in our bones, he's for me. He's going to work for me. Then we will cave and become sinners over and over again. That's the first observation to lay a foundation for what we see in Hebrews. A second foundation is that that assurance or conviction or substance, that that confidence that's there about the future and God being for us in the future is based on something. We're Christians. It's based on Christ and his work. Christ in his work. And oh, there isn't any more glorious portrait of Christ in his work than the first 10 chapters of the book of Hebrews. It's just glorious. Let me give you a few summary statements. Christ, according to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 8, is God. So if you work among Muslims or if you work among Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons or I guess any other religion for that matter, you need to be persuaded of this. Here's the verse. Hebrews 1.8. Of the Son, S-O-N, God says, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. Of the Son, God says, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. The righteous scepter is the scepter of thy kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, thy God, has anointed thee with the oil of gladness beyond thy comrades. Jesus is God, and the Father is God. That's the first thing we notice about Jesus in the book of Hebrews. Second, he takes on human flesh in chapter 2, verse 14, in order that he might put to death him who has the power of death, that is the devil, to deliver those who've been held in bondage by the fear of death all their lives. Chapter 2, verse 14. Thirdly, he is the son of over the house of God and therefore superior to Moses and all the law who was a servant in the house of God. Indeed, as it says in 3, 5, and 6, he made the house. He isn't just a son in the house, he made the house, the house of the people of God. 
He's greater than all the high priests of Aaron and Levi. That's why Melchizedek has to be brought into this book. Why? Because Melchizedek, this strange character who shows up in in Genesis 14 with no beginning that you can see, no ending that you can see, and to whom Abraham pays tithes, and thus in the loins of Abraham, as it were, the priests pay tithes later. All that strange imagery, all, as it were, talk pointing to Jesus And he says, that's an image of Jesus. That's a type of Jesus. No beginning, no ending. All is worth worth paying to him. And he holds his priesthood, not like the Aaronic Levitical priests who die and have to replace each other. He holds his priesthood forever and ever lives to make intercession for those who belong to him. So he's just, what this book does is take everything about the old order and show that Jesus is better. Better everything, better everything, better sacrifice because he offers the sacrifice of himself, it says in chapter 7. Better covenant, the new covenant, law written on the heart now, not on stone. I will be your God, you will be my people, I will walk among you. He reigns to put all of his enemies under his feet, chapter 10, verses 12 to 14. He has perfected, past tense, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified by him. That's a little summary of the Christ who underneath guarantees the assurance of things hoped for. That's the structure of this book. Christ is superior to everything we've ever known in order that by his death and resurrection and righteousness, he might provide for us an assurance of things hoped for. This is a future-oriented book. And now, from chapter 10 to chapter 13, comes some of the most radical stories you've ever known. And we've got 10 minutes to look at one of them. And so I asked you to open your Bible to chapter 10, verses 32 to 39. Chapter 10, 32 to 39. Here's a picture of what happened when the Hebrews got saved that he's writing to. Remember the former days when, after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated? Now, notice that. They suffered in two ways. Some of them suffered directly, being made a public spectacle, reproaches and tribulations. Others voluntarily became sharers with them. Now, how did they do that? What's going on there? Keep reading and you'll see. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners. Okay, that's how it happened. Some of them got put in prison. And you know, prison in those days was not posh. Probably you didn't get food unless your relatives brought you food. But if the relatives bring you food, then they identify with you. And if you're in jail for a ideological or religious reason, the the relatives are going to be in big trouble, probably. So the other Christians had to decide, do we go and identify with them? Do we share in their sufferings or do we go underground and disappear? And the answer was, verse 34, you showed sympathy to the prisoners. And here's what happened. You accepted joyfully the seizure of your property. Or some translations say the plundering. We don't know. You can't tell from the Greek here. I don't think whether it is official confiscation or mob violence of vandalism and throwing the furniture out in the streets and burning it up, writing all over the house. Christians, get out of here. Something like that. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners. So they had a little prayer meeting. And they all discussed, what should we do? Should we have big insurance? Or no insurance. Shall we have big retirement or no retirement? Shall we go to the prison and risk our houses being burned? Or shall we stay here and be safe? And they, they, they sang a Martin Luther hymn. I know it's an anachronism. But they did. They sang, let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill. God's truth abideth still, his kingdom is forever. Let's go to the prison. And they went 
And what happened was their, their, their houses got plundered or confiscated. You joyfully accepted the seizure of your property. I'm, I'm at verse 34 of Hebrews 10. Knowing that you have a better possession for yourself and an abiding one, Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward. I'm going to stop there. I could keep reading and show you how a warning is used. And then he says, we're not among those who shrink back. But let's just stop there. And in the few minutes we have left, dwell on this. Think about this. Do you see? Have I, have I been successful enough in making... Living by faith in future grace plain. So do you break the back of the temptations of sin and ease and comfort and safety in your life by the power of a superior promise so that you are unleashed to love in radical ways on the mission field and at home? Have I made that plain enough that you can see it here? And you could take this text and go back to a Sunday school class and say everything that I've said just on the basis of this text. Don't don't go back to your church and say, oh, Pastor John said this and John said this. and John. Who cares what John Piper says? Take them to texts. Take them to texts like this one and ask them questions like, OK, here's a group of people who showed sympathy for prisoners at great cost to themselves. That is, a price of love was paid, a high price. And then ask them, show me from this text. You know, if you don't do that in Bible studies, people just, they just start dreaming all over. Oh, it says in Genesis, and my grandmother said, and I just... Just come with me to the words of the Bible and stay in these verses and answer me from these verses how they got the spiritual wherewithal to leave comfort, move toward need and love. And uh, hopefully one of the sharp people in your Sunday school class would say, looks to me like joy is a key. Because it says they joyfully accepted the seizure of their property. Something that happened in their uh, mental makeup and in their heart to be very strange people that they would rejoice in what everybody else grumbles about. You lose something, your car breaks. You, you lose something or somebody steals something and you grumble, 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 grumble. These people didn't grumble. At least it doesn't tell us that they grumbled. Maybe they grumbled a minute. But it says they rejoiced. So there's my Christian hedonism as the key to love. If we are not the kind of people who can rejoice in the plundering of our property, how will we risk the plundering of our property for the sake of the nations? So I'm trying with all my might to beget in my church slowly, slowly after 20 years and in this assembly a kind of people who are pursuing joy. I'm not coming saying, forget the pursuit of joy, forget your own will, do God's will. That's not the way I'm preaching. I grew up on that and it didn't work because it isn't biblical. This is biblical. This is biblical. Verse 34 is in the Bible. These people rejoiced at the plundering of their property, which means something had happened in their joy structure. Something went on in their brain. Something had happened in their heart. And you know what it was? Let's keep reading. That's what you always say to people. Keep reading. Keep reading. Because you got a participle now. And participles, the adverbial participles, function to give different kinds of arguments. And you have to figure out from context what the kind of argument is. You tell me what kind of argument this is. All right. They joyfully accepted the seizure of their property, comma. Now, maybe your version makes the participle into a finite verb and gives the argument and interprets it for you. That's okay if they get it right. 
But literally, it's just a participle that says, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and an abiding one. I would paraphrase the participle like this. Because you know. They joyfully accepted the seizure of their property because they knew that they had for themselves a better possession and an abiding one. And there is what had happened in their heart. They had fallen in love so deeply, so profoundly, and they had, according to chapter 11, verse 1, become so assured of things hoped for that when they saw what God had promised to be for them in this life and in the next, they said, let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also, I have a better possession and an abiding one. And you know what that is? God. Because it says, taking those two words, better and abiding, better and abiding, better and abiding, better and abiding. It says in Psalm 1611, thou dost show me the path of life in thy presence is how much joy? Fullness of joy. And at thy right hand are pleasures for how long? Forevermore. That's abiding and that's better. That's abiding and that's better. God is the reward here. God is the reward. I am on a crusade to become and to beget a people who are radically Christian, hedonistic, in that they will not settle for 99% proof joy. They will have 100% proof or not accept it. And this is where you find it. I have a better possession. In God. And I'm on a crusade to produce a kind of people who will not settle for joy that peters out in 800 years. No, thank you. I will have a joy that lasts forever or I'm not interested. And therefore, I see where they, I, I see what changed about these people. They fell in love with God. They really began to believe in God. I close with a little story from last night. I don't know why the Lord does this sort of thing, except maybe. For you and me. I was thinking about my son again. Um, I think about him all the time. And he's 20 years old. And uh, I had been reading a novel by Randy Alcorn last night for a little while. And it was about gangs and stuff. And it kind of made me churn inside with nervousness and fear. Because these gangs are awful. And so I closed the book and I went out on the porch of the house where... That wonderful house where you've put us. Thank you. We're just so well cared for here. Um, there's a porch. And it was probably 10. And uh, the moon. Did you see the moon last night? This big half moon up there. And just below the moon, right at the tree line, was a little teeny twinkling star. The only one I could see. And I just stared at it. And it was twinkling. That's how I knew it was a star. Planets don't twinkle. And I thought, it's so little. It's just so little. And it's twinkling. The, the atmosphere is threatening to just put it out in a minute. could disappear just like that with a little teeny cloud. What's a cloud? It's gone. And then my mind ran up a few billion miles to see it for what it is by faith. Scientific faith. And I said, you know what? That's big. It's bigger than the moon. And the moon looks big beside it. Probably the moon was a hmm, 500 times bigger in my mind's eye than this little twinkling thing. 500 times bigger the moon was. And I said, you know what? That star is probably 10 million times bigger than the moon. It's probably 10,000 times bigger than the sun, which is a 1,000 times bigger than the earth. And I am a speck of dust on the earth, and so are those gangs. And all that churning inside, that fear that was being created by fiction. <laughs> I thought, if fiction does this to my soul, what would a real gang do to me? A real mob in Saudi Arabia or Yemen or Pakistan or Chicago uh, do to me? And I said, Lord, you 
made that star, which is so big. And you flicked it out, and there were 10 million others you flicked out. You're big. Would you never let me be ashamed of your bigness in the face of a gang or as I deal with my son? Would you never let me begin to sink into self-pity or fear that somehow my little gospel is small or that my God is small or that my Christ is small or that the cross is small or that I'm surrounded by a million billion Hindus or Muslims and I'm so teeny. Would you never let me succumb to that kind of feeling, but rather would you just sweep me up into the promise that I have a better possession than they'll ever know, and it is lasting, and I will one day judge angels. Let's pray. Father, we've looked at covetousness and how to fight it with Hebrews 13, 5, and 6. And then we came to Hebrews 10, and we've looked at a group of Christians who are so strange that they rejoiced at the plundering of their property because they knew in their hearts, and not just their heads, that they had a magnificent treasure in God. And according to the teachings of Jesus that they would get back even a hundredfold in this life in some ways. Brothers and sisters and others and fathers and houses and lands and in the age to come, eternal life with persecutions. Oh God, my prayer very simply now is that in this assembly, by the power of the Holy Spirit, through the agency of the word that we have looked at, you would now produce that kind of people in this room and behind this pulpit. In Jesus' name, amen.